This is part two of Balak. Please listen to part one first. These four words are Melech, Ozer, Umoshia, Umagen. Melech, King, Ozer, Helper, Moshia, Rescuer, and Magen, Shield. Whereas in the first part of this paragraph, we relate to Hashem in a very general manner, here, these four words develop our personal relationship with Him. These four words are the key to the entire Amidah. If one says them correctly, one is left in a perfect spiritual space for the rest of the surface. Even if one has said the first parts of his paragraph without the proper Kavanah and concentration, if these four words are said properly, they will bring the worshiper to such a closeness to Hashem that the rest of the Amidah will be perfect. Let us look at these four words in detail. The first word is king, melech. We begin by looking at Hashem as our king and our relationship to him as that of a subject to a king. A king is far away, in his capital city, in his palace. If you want something from the king, you must send him a formal request. And it goes through his staff, his ministers, his secretary. Then if you're lucky, after a few months, you may get a reply. Therefore, when we address Hashem as king, we see him as a majestic but distant. Help is available with him and from him, but not closely available. In the next word, we address Hashem as helper, ozer. Now we see Hashem as much closer than a king. A helper is someone whom we can readily approach. He is a friend whom we know we can always call on and who will always make himself available to us. Therefore, when we call Hashem helper, we realize that we can call on him at any time and he will be there for us. This is a relationship much closer than to a king. In saying this word, Ozer, we are beginning the process through which we draw closer to Hashem. Then we address Hashem as rescuer, Morshia. Again, a rescuer is much closer than a helper. A rescuer is someone who is available to save you when you are drowning in a river. He is right there to jump in and pull you out. A helper may have the best intentions in the world, but if he is not close to you at all times, he cannot save you when you are in danger. Therefore, when we speak to Hashem as our rescuer, we see him as being available whenever we need him, ready to rescue us in an instant. We recognize that Hashem is always close enough to help us, even when we are in imminent danger. Thus, the relationship of a rescuer is much closer than that of a helper. This word, Moshia, even brings us a step closer to Hashem. Finally, we speak to Hashem as our shield. A shield is even closer than a rescuer. A shield can even help when an arrow is flying at me and there is nothing else that can stop it. Personally, I think of it as someone fires a gun out of nowhere. No one knows that he fired the gun until it's too late. And before someone can even cry out for help, Hashem steps in to help. Rabbi Kaplan writes, when the arrow is flying, there's no time for even the rescuer to intercept it. The shield must be there in place right in front of me. Thus, when I address Hashem as my shield, again, I can feel him right in front of me. Hashem is all around me, surrounding me like a suit of divine armor. 
I'm totally aware of Hashem's protective power surrounding me on all sides. I feel that I'm being protected by Hashem so that nothing in the world can harm me. Thus, in these four words, Melech, King, Ozer, Helper, Moshiach, Rescuer, and Magen, Shield, we become more and more aware of Hashem's closeness. First, we see Him as a benevolent but distant King, then as a willing Helper, then as a nearby Rescuer, and finally as an imminent Shield. In these four worlds, we make the transition from viewing Hashem as a remote, transcendental force to seeing Him as a protector, who is closer than the air around us. The one person who reached the level where he could constantly see Hashem as a shield was Avraham. Hashem had told Avraham Avinu, Do not fear, Avraham, for I am a shield to you. From that time on, Avraham had a constant perception of Hashem as his shield. He was always aware of Hashem being very close to him, surrounding him and protecting him on a most imminent and direct level. Of all the levels of relationship to Hashem, the level of shield is the closest. Here we see Hashem close enough to stop even a flying bullet. This was the level attained by Avraham, and at this point in the Amidah, we aspire to it. Even unaware of the danger, and oblivious to even call out for help. Hashem is there protecting us. The theme of protecting us even when we are unaware that we see in this week's portion begins really in last week's portion, and we discussed it in our class on Sunday morning. After the passing of Aaron and victory against the Malachites disguised as Canaanites, we complain about our food. We say that we're disgusting by, disgusted by the manna. And then the verse states, Vayishalach Hashem ba'am et hanechashim haserafim. Many wrongly translate the verse as Hashem sends serpents into the Israelite encampment. But there is a difference between the word Vayishlach which we see a number of other times in the portion, and this word, which is actually Vayeshalach. There's the two dots under the Yud, and there's the dot inside the Lamid, which strengthens the Lamid. So it's Vayeshalach versus Vayishlach. Both words share the same root of Shalach, send, but in Hebrew, the root is built to clarify the verb. One word means to send, and the second one actually means to release or unleash, as Rabbi Yosef Biton so beautifully explains. He points to Vahi Beshalach Paro and explains it in a similar manner as when Hashem, or when Paro, released B'nai Israel from Egypt, which makes much more sense. This verse teaches us that Hashem, rather than sending, released or unleashed these snakes. Our Chachamim explained that in the desert, Boreolam protected us from our enemies and the natural elements, the dangerous climate, the desert animals, the sandstorms. All of that was with the Ananea Kavod. It was like a virtual cloud, like a firewall. Divine punishment, then, does not consist in Hashem sending the poisonous snakes. 
but rather in Hashem suspending His special protection. And thus the poisonous snakes act according to their nature and instinct. The proper translation helps us to understand that Hashem constantly protects B'nai Israel, and not only in the desert. <coughs> Yisrael, the Nevi'im and the Chachamim said, is like a little lamb among the nations. We're surrounded by enemies who want to destroy us. B'nai Israel are protected by Bodei Olam through an invisible divine firewall that keeps our enemies away. Thwarts their plans, deflects their missiles, confuses their ideas. This helps to answer the question posed by Mark Twain. When he wrote about the Jews, he wrote, He has made a marvelous fight in this world, in all ages, and has done it with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself and be excused for it. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jews saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? I'll tell you what it is. Divine protection is the secret. When our behavior is not correct, unfortunately, somehow the divine firewall is deactivated. And when Hashem suspends his special protection, the enemies of Israel do their thing. This idea is mentioned in a very explicit way in the book of Devarim, when Hashem says, When the Jewish people abandon their covenant with Hashem, the most severe punishment Israel might get is that Hashem hides his presence. That is... Hashem suspends His special protection from us. A beautiful aspect of this idea of Vayeshalach is what we can learn from the verse indirectly about the way the Creator protects us as a nation and also as individuals without us even realizing it. Last week's parasha continues with this idea in the sixth Aliyah as we journey on making our way towards the eastern bank of the Jordan River. Encrypted in this section is a great miracle which occurred when we passed through the Arnon Valley. Tall cliffs rose from both sides of this narrow valley, and in the clefts of these cliffs, the Amorites. They were armed with arrows and rocks, and they're waiting to ambush us. Miraculously, the Midrash tells us the mountains moved towards each other, crushing the guerrilla forces. This section ends with a song of praise for the well which sustained us throughout our desert stay and whose now bloodied waters made us aware of the great miracle which Hashem brought on our behalf. I believe these ideas expressed as we are about to enter the land are so important. They are meant to give us strength as we leave the miraculous world of the clouds, the man and the well along with the leadership of Moshe Rabbeinu behind. 
We are about to embark on a new chapter. This new time will see us needing to do things, planting our fields, defending our cities, growing wealthier and stronger. As a consequence of success, we gradually begin to believe that I am responsible for my own success and my own defense. As the Torah warns us, we will say, It's my own strength, my own power that has done this. To overcome this danger, we must remember that the revealed miracles of the desert will not disappear. They will simply be replaced by hidden miracles. The revealed protection of the holy clouds encircling us will be replaced by a hidden protection, and the latter in both cases may be more important than the former, because the latter requires faith and a realization that Hashem is taking care of us even when we don't know it and even when we don't or cannot ask. The message of this parasha is a message of faith, of emunah, of bitachon, We are never alone. As Rabbi Abitan put it, we are like a child in our mother's womb or a boy on his father's shoulders. There is a secret to our immortality, and that is Hashem is truly our magen, our shield. We should remind ourselves of this each day, and in reminding ourselves, we will appreciate and be blessed to always be protected. Think Melech, the king is there, it's far, but I know him. Ozer, I know him so well that I could ask him to help me and do me a favor. Moshia, even if I'm in the swimming pool and I'm drowning and I can just say, ah, he'll reach in and save me. Umagen, even when I'm unaware of the danger, Hashem is the field, is the, is the, is the shield to protect me. Now that we could walk away with this lesson, let's explore the sod, the secret as it relates to this perasha. And Bezrat Hashem will walk away with a much deeper understanding of the verses, the story, and the extraordinary way the spiritual world works. We noted the statement in the Gemara, it's in Baba Batra, page 14b. Moshe Rabbeinu wrote down his book and the book of Bil'am. Rashi comments that even though this portion of Bil'am is not part of the Torah of Moses. Moses included it in the Torah subsequently. We need to understand this strange statement. As the portion begins, we are told that the people of Moab are afraid because they see that even though they believed that their territory was protected, the territory that had been conquered by the giants Sihon and Og was now taken over by Bnei Israel. Let us recall that 10 territories were promised to Bnei Israel, but as a result of Lot keeping his silence in Egypt, and as a gift to Edom, these three territories remain until after Mashiach. So we get seven, three are left over. <coughs> Seeing their territory now taken, or part of their territory now taken, the Moabites feared that no longer were they protected. They also saw that the giants, Sihon and Og, who they were paying tribute to for protection and who were descendants of Malachim were unable to battle against Moshe Rabbeinu both on a physical and a spiritual level. The Moabites are told that Moshe's power lies in his mouth and in order to combat it, they need someone else who has that power in his mouth. Let's also keep this in mind. 
How could anyone possibly combat Moshe Rabbeinu with the power of the mouth? Could there be someone as strong? At least as strong spiritually. <clears throat> What's interesting also is we've discussed before that Moshe Rabbeinu is in some way a tikkun or a repair for his ancestor, his great-great-grandfather, Levi, the son of Yaakov. When Yitzchak blesses Yaakov, he states that the voice, Hakol Kol Yaakov, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esav. Our power, the power of Bnei Israel, lies in our voice and in the words of our mouth, while the power of Esav and the descendants of Edom is in their hands. When Shimon and Levi destroy the city of Shechem, they destroy it with their hands, and their father refers to them in a negative way. Moshe is in some way a tikkun, a repair for the behavior of his great-great-grandfather. It's interesting that when Moshe Rabbeinu first goes out from the palace to see his brothers, Bnei Israel, in Egypt, he confronts the Egyptian who is attempting to kill Datan. Moshe Rabbeinu kills him. How? With his words. His koach, his power, is in his mouth. The Chachamim tell us that he uses the 42, the Membet letter name of Hashem. This is hidden within the Anabekoach prayer. And it's also possibly alluded to in the Torah telling us that we made 42 stops in the desert. <coughs> At the same time, once the people leave Egypt and there is no water, Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu to hit the rock to bring water. 40 years later, after the death of Miriam, Hashem again tells Moshe to bring water from the rock, but this time he is to speak to the rock to bring water, not hit it. But instead, Moshe hits the rock twice, and for that he is punished. <laughs> Part of the problem is in displacing the mouth with the hand. The second problem is in how Moses speaks to the people when he calls them rebels. And in this entire incident, it appears that he is not using his mouth in the correct manner. In some way, Moshe Rabbeinu has caused a blemish in the power of his own mouth, and we need to keep this in mind too. We are told that Balak is a grandson of Yitro. And the reason the Moabites appoint him as king is because they believe he knows something about the leader of their enemy. Recall that before coming to Egypt, Moshe Rabbeinu lived with the Midianites and Yitro for a number of years. The Zohar Kadosh explains that Balak was called Balak ben Sipor. Sipor literally means bird, because he could predict the future using birds. As a side note, he's a descendant of Yitro, and his wife is Siporah. Sipor, but with the hay for the Kiddushah. We ask, why did the Zohar Kadosh feel it was relevant to teach us this? Also, the whole parasha is full of this idea, as we see, different mentions of kesamim, witchcraft, and so on. We see all of this that Balak's people used, were able to use. And the question is that if Balak himself was a great, if not the greatest sorcerer in the world, and his people were also people of witchcraft, then the question poses itself, why did they need Bil'am at all? So a beautiful answer presented by Rav David Yosef Kidyubinsky. He suggests that witchcraft, witchcraft is something of limited power. Yes, one can affect the physical world in certain ways, 
but witchcraft has its limits. It is not breaking the rules of nature. It is in fact a force which is very much in accordance with the rules of nature, and thus is bound by its limitations. Just as everything else is bound in the physical world by limitations, so is witchcraft. So we see that kishuf cannot affect something smaller than a barley grain, which is why the makav kinim in Mitzrayim, remember there the Egyptian sources declare that this must be the finger of Hashem. For kishuf is not capable of causing this. Chazal give us many other examples of its limitations as well. Thus we are told that a Jew who is aware that in od bilevado, there was no one except Hashem, that nothing truly exists except the or and sof, the, the never-ending light of Hashem. That person will not be affected by kishuf, by witchcraft at all. Rabbi Kidyabinsky remembers once being privileged to eat a meal on Shabbat by Rabbi Daniel Frisch, He was a very holy person in a Mikubal. He was the author of the Matok Midvash, a perush on the Zohar Kadosh and portions of the Kitveari. <coughs> the rabbi told the story of how he was once suffering an ailment. Conventional doctors couldn't help him. Someone he knew suggested that he go to a popular quote-unquote, energy healer in Yerushalayim. He did not know if energy healing is kishuf or not, or even if it is not, perhaps certain energy healers use kishuf in their practices as well. But he thought to himself that he would go to this healer and meditate on the words in Od Milevado. There is no one except Hashem. There was no one other than Him, no power other than Him. He would meditate on these words while the healer was working. Thus, if it was kishuf, it would not work. As the healing was passing his hands up and down the body, Rav Daniel began his meditation. He noticed that the healer seemed to be getting more and more frustrated and seemed to exert more and more power as he continued the process. Eventually, he saw the healer pouring sweat as if he was engaged in extremely exhausting labor. After a time, the healer told him, go home. For some reason, I could not help you. I would love those who often ask about going to these holy healers to keep this in mind. Rabbi Abitan was totally against this and would repeat to us when people would ask the question, should they go, tamim im Hashem. You should be pure with Hashem. We have a direct relationship. We don't need to go to these people. Perhaps it's for this very reason that Balak realized that his sorcery would not avail him. Bil'am was known to be a holy man, one connected to Hashem, who indeed claimed to be Yodea Da'at Elyon, to know the divine will. Indeed, the rabbis Hazal tell us in the Gemara and Sanhedrin that Bil'am started out as a Navi'a prophet and only afterwards fell into the power of evil. We are told that his donkey was a gift from Yaakov Avinu himself while he was in Egypt with Bil'am. Thus, Balak felt that in order to defeat Kalal Yisrael, who were connected to Hashem, he would have to use someone who also was in some way connected to Hashem. The rabbis comment that Lokam be Yisrael ke Moshe there never rose in Israel a prophet as great as Moses. This is one of the tenets of our faith. But among the nations, there was such a prophet, and his name was Bilam. 
We have discussed in the past the root of the soul of Moshe Rabbeinu. <coughs> Just to repeat, according to Rabbeinu Hari and Sha'ar HaGilgulim, within the name Moshe is embedded the entire history of his soul's journey to date. And we know that Moshe Rabbeinu, as we discussed last week, was a reincarnation of Hevel, who thousands of years earlier at the dawn of mankind was murdered by his brother Cain. Rabbi Pinhas Winston writes that we know that a person's soul is made up of many aspects. The bigger the soul, the more aspects it may have. After Hevel died prematurely, his soul divided into different sections, and this, says the Arizal, was represented by a division in his name. The name Hevel is Hey, and then Bet Lamed, three letters, Hey, Bet Lamed. And he says there's a division between the Hey and the Bet Lamed. The Bet Lamed part of Hevel's soul was considered to be bad, the negative side, the Deen. It first reincarnated into Laban, the father-in-law of Yaakov Avinu. This is why Lavan's name is smelled Lamad Bet, Lamid Bet Nun. We have again the Lamid Bet, Bet Lamid. After all, Lavan was far from being pure, as his name Lavan White suggested. Quite the contrary, though Lavan was cautioned to always look good, everyone knew that he was devious and diabolical, as real a whitewasher as they come. From Lavan, the Bet Lamid went to Bil'am, Bet Lamed and then Am, the prophet that tried to curse B'nai Israel in Moshe's time. He also had the Bet Lamed in his name, as did Balak, his partner in this. And later on we'll see, it is also in the name of Bavel, as the Tower of Bavel and the city of Bavel and the nation of Bavel, which comes to destroy the first Bet HaMikdash. This wasn't the end of the journey of the Bet Lamed part of Hevel's name, which has been undergoing rectification. It returns as Naval, again the same exact letters of Lavan, but in reverse. Lavan, Lamed, Bet Nun, Naval, Nun, Bet, Lamed. But let's leave Naval and his relationship with King David for another class. The He, on the other hand, was the good part of Hevel's soul. And that came back another time in the body of Shet. The third son bore to Adam and Hava after they completed their 130-year period of Teshuvah for eating from the tree. Thus, when Hava said that she named her son Shet, the Pasuk says, because Hashem granted me other children in place of Hevel, whom Hain killed. Shet is Tachat Hevel, under, replace. She wasn't kidding. Shet was for the most part Hevel Act 2. After Shet was finished adding his own level of rectification to Hevel's soul, it came back with Noah, comes back with Shem, comes back again in Moshe Rabbeinu. So we have the same root soul, true soul brothers, with Moshe representing the He of Hevel, while Bil'am represents the Bet Lamed of Hevel, each with an opportunity to repair his part. When we say that Bil'am chose the route of uncleanliness, we see the verse tells us that Palak compliments him. 
Those who you bless are blessed, and those who you curse will be cursed. Note the tenses. Those who are blessed, who you bless are blessed in the past. Those who you curse will be cursed in the future. He may see in the stars that someone will be blessed and then blesses him as if he is the source. But his only true power at this point is to curse. He can determine the moment when he can curse. <clears throat> this is his intent here. The brief moment of Hashem's anger will, be, will allow Bil'am to utter the word kalem or destroy them. How then do we understand the idea of Bil'am blessing B'nai Israel? Look also at Rashi who suggests that Bil'am was asking permission to go with Balak's men. And then he asks Hashem, if I cannot curse them, can I bless them? Why would he want to bless them? During the incident with the donkey, we are told that the angel of mercy comes to stop Bil'am. The angel appears to the donkey and we are told, why to the donkey? Because animals don't fully understand, they won't be as afraid. But we're also told that if a human being sees an angel, he'll get so frightened, perhaps have a heart attack and die. Yet when the angel, with a fiery sword in his hand, appears to Bil'am, the prophet of the nations, there's no fear. He seems very comfortable with the angel and simply admits that he did wrong, but he'll continue on his way and understands that he can only do what Hashem tells him to do. Who is this man Bil'am? What is his power? We've discussed previously that the typical method of prophecy was for someone on a spiritual level to travel up from world to world, from corridor to corridor, until the prophet spiritually through meditation reaches the place below the throne of glory. The passage from each corridor to corridor was guarded by angels. And to get through one, you needed to know the password, the name of the angel to get through. This was something taught in the schools of the prophets, the schools of the B'nai Nevi'im, and we're told that among B'nai Israel there were more than a million prophets, even though we only have 50 some odd that are written about. One more lesson from our past classes to keep in mind is that Hashem created the world so that it is always in perfect balance. We are always at 50-50. We have discussed in the past that as we grow, our test or challenge becomes greater because our free will must always be in balance. We are always at this ratio of 50-50. So the greater we become, the greater the challenge. It just keeps growing, so it's always a 50-50 choice. Rambam discusses this in terms of each of us in our daily behavior, especially when it comes to the holidays. He tells us we're at 50-50, we need to look at ourselves as if we're 50-50, the world is at 50-50, and he reminds us that every action that we do has the ability not just to tip our own scale, but to tip the scale of the entire world in the direction of good and evil. In a similar manner, the Mikubalim explained that each of us has a counter on this earth, or a shadow. That shadow is our counterbalance. One rises, one falls. One falls, one rises. What's scary is the concept is that our loss can be our shadow's gain. My father, Lava Shalom, would always remind us of the Hebrew word for luck, mazal, which indicates makom, mem zayin lamid. Makom, place, zeman, time, lasot, to do, to action. It seems that Hashem can put us in a certain place and we can be there at the right time. 
but it's up to us to do the action. Unfortunately, if we pass the place or we pass the time and only do the action later, it doesn't work. Apparently, Moshe Rabbeinu had a tremendous opportunity and the only way for us to begin to understand how great that opportunity was to sanctify Hashem's name and to change the world is to see it through the punishment met out against him for not fulfilling it. We have to imagine that seeing the punishment so great, you did not sanctify my name when you had the opportunity, meant that Moshe could have sanctified Hashem's name to such a high level. People seeing the rock, the rock is from Domem, the lowest level of creation. They would see how a rock, which has no life to it, can listen. How much more so people who are imbued with a soul, who are the highest level of creation, how much more so if a rock would listen, are people required to listen? We see the opening words of Rashi when he says that Balak realizes that the power of Moshe Rabbeinu was in his mouth. What's being hinted at is that although the power of Moshe was in his mouth, the Sipor would hint to his master Balak that there was a loss of power. And when there's a loss, a missed opportunity, that missed opportunity is transferred to someone else. In our own lives, each day we have a test. Each day we have opportunities. They relate to our mazal, our luck. We are in a certain place, a certain time. The test is on us to do it. But if we miss that opportunity, it's not like we can have that opportunity again. And often that opportunity is taken and given to another. And that other could be our shadow. I find it very interesting that the rabbis tell us that when the King Balak sends messengers... He sends angels. It's crazy. We see Vaishlach Yaakov. Yaakov sent Malachim. There we saw his messengers, angels he sent to his brother Esav. But Balak too is capable of sending messengers who are angels. Perhaps there's also a message here to remind us that it's angels who represent those beings who carry out the transfer from one person to another. Rabbi Adedit brings a story that is told about Rav Chaim Vital. <clears throat> he tells us that in the 16th century there was a drought at the time in the Middle East, in Yerushalayim in particular, and at the time the area was controlled by the Turks, and Suleiman the Great, who built the walls around the city, came to Rav Chaim Vital and told him, I know you have the ability to bring water from Jerusalem. He ordered him to bring the water or to die. So he's asked by the Arizal, what happened? What did you do? And he says, I flew away. I went to Egypt to save my life and only returned when it was safe. Rabbi Nohari asked him why he didn't bring the water. Rabbi Chaim Vital said he didn't want to do it through the use of the Shema Miforash, the holy name. The rabbi asked him rhetorically, then uh, how did you fly away? Rabbi Nohari then explained that Suleiman was in fact a spark of the king of Ashur, Sanhariv. And he, Rav Chaim Vital, had within him the spark of the soul of the king of the Jewish people, Chizkiyahu. When Sanhariv surrounded the city, Chizkiyahu stopped the spring from giving water so as to deny water to the enemy troops. This was the spring of water from below the temple in Yerushalayim. This is what we mentioned last week. Hezekiah did not. He did this against the opinion. He did not ask. He did this against the opinion of the rabbis at the time. 
We should also remember that we're told that Hezkiyahu should have been the Mashiach had he on the day following the miraculous victory over the troops of Sanpurim, who surrounded Jerusalem, who surrounded the city <coughs> on the night of Pesach, and they all died during the siege that night. Sanharif should have sung praise in a proper way the next morning to Hashem, but he didn't. And had he sung in the right way, he would have been Mashiach. Narav Chaim Vital, the spark of, of Chizkiyahu, had the opportunity to repair the error in the face of Suleiman, who was Sanhariv, and Rav Chaim Vital could have become the Mashiach. So Rav Chaim Vital tells his teacher, okay, we'll bring the water now. And Narizal tells him it's too late, the opportunity passed, and it's passed on to someone else. This thought is absolutely frightening because we could have someone who Hashem wants to be blessed with an incredible amount of shefa. Hashem puts this person into the right place at the right time. He wants to bestow him with this shefa. This person is required to do something to skip tip the scale to bring the reality. <clears throat> we know we have said many times, nothing happens above without an action from below. It's up to us to flip the switch, to bring the potential into reality. And that person fails. That shefa, which should have fallen onto that person, is transferred to someone else because there's no loss of energy in this world. Remember, we all learned in school what's true in the physical world seems to be true in the spiritual world. Energy is always conserved. When a physical object burns or rots, the energy or energy configuration or information contained in that physical object is not destroyed. It merely passes on to another form. So the blessing or the energy meant for one doesn't disappear. It goes to someone else. Thus, we can suggest that the world, that the word <coughs> that will emanate from the throat of Bil'am is actually the word of Moshe Rabbeinu. We can posit that this is why Bil'am so much wants to use his new gift. This is why he asks Hashem, can I curse? And when he's told no, he says, but can I bless them? Bil'am simply wants to use this new power. This also explains why he's not afraid of the angel because he has within him this spark relating to Moshe. As we have said, they both emanate from the same soul, from the root of Hevel, or by one from the good and one from the evil. Although Bilam could have chosen good and Moshe could have chosen evil, there's always free will. Moshe Rabbeinu comes into Egypt with his wife and children and they're riding on the donkey, which we say is the donkey of the Mashiach, the same donkey that Avraham Avinu used when he went up to the binding of Isaac, to the Akedat Yitzchak on the mountain. And who is the mother of this donkey that will carry the Mashiach, that carried the wood for Yaakov, who ca that carried the wood for Yitzchak, and that carried the children of Moshe Rabbeinu? The mother of this donkey is the donkey of Bil'am, and it's the donkey of Bil'am that was gifted to him by Yaakov. And I wonder if Yaakov gave the donkey the mother donkey to Bil'am, did he give the other donkey, the child, to Yitro? And that is where Moshe took the donkey to Egypt, two very old donkeys. Perhaps this is what the wizard Balak saw through his bird. 
He saw that following the incident with the rock, that even though Moshe defeated Sichon and Og, and then even though his power was great in heaven, there was some loss of power. And that loss of power of the mouth was transferred to Bil'am, who was the shadow of Moshe. Balak understood that perhaps there was an opportunity at that moment to use that power against Bnei Israel. As to Moshe writing his Torah in this portion, perhaps it noted this way, as Moshe was embarrassed on how this reflected on him, or another way of understanding could suggest that even though the words emanated from Bil'am's throat, they were still the blessing and prophecies of Moshe Rabbeinu and deserved to be included in the Torah because even coming from another party or another throat, still it was Moshe's voice and he wanted his voice of blessing to be heard for all eternity. As we enter the three weeks, this portion has such tremendous lessons on the power of faith, the power of the mouth and the consequences of missed opportunity. Let us heed the message well so that they impact our lives and may we grow to bring Mashiach b'merabi amenu. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Thank you for listening and hopefully next Wednesday we'll be back live and we'll see you on Zoom.